This is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices are what have brought you right here to this very moment? Episode number three, Rattler, or Who Says You Can't Teach an Old Dodge New Tricks? Published in Realms of Fantasy in 2004. This is an interesting one. A short story about training a truck or a pick-em-up. There is a frame narrative of an unnamed we overhearing two men discuss training hunting dogs. One asserts that it is easier to train a new hunting dog alongside an experienced one so that the trained dog teaches the untrained one. The other argues back, at length, that it doesn't work that way. The untrained dog is merely observing how the trained dog pleases the hunter and imitating the pleasing behavior, which seems to me like teaching by example. (laughs) The second man goes on to describe how his hunting dog, now dead, seems to have trained his truck to be a hunting truck in a process that sounds much more like a contagious infection than training. The possibility of a haunting by the spirit of the dead dog seems to be belied by the fact that the truck responds to its own name, Rattler, rather than the dog's name, Bud. The truck fetches, trees raccoons, and comes when called. It also marks its territory with little puddles of gas. The second man then goes on to describe how his truck's behavior engenders a bit of competition with his brother-in-law, who must endure the indignity of not being able to teach anything but rolling over. And then the story wraps up with a bit of growth in the brother-in-law and then closes with the original we, quoting William Blake and then revealing their identities as someone named Gene and someone named Brian. I feel like Gene Wolfe is up to something here. What do you think, Brent? I think he is too. Weird. I've read and reread this multiple times. Well, I think that's something that Gene Wolfe's prose typically demands. So tell me, what did you get out of it? It's very straightforward and simple, right? It is. I do want to front load this a little bit, this part of the conversation. So looking up collaborative short fiction or fiction at all, I could only find three works that Gene Wolfe collaborated. So this is unusual in his repertoire for being a collaboration. Yes. So I found that there is a walking tour of the shambles. That was with Neil Gaiman in 2002. The same year, The Tree is My Hat, and that was with Lawrence Santoro. I haven't read anything by him. And then in 2004, we have Rattler with Brian Hopkins. Right, who is, as I understand just from research, since I haven't read any of his stuff, he's a horror writer? Yeah, that's what my research showed too. So he has a novel, and the reason I bring this up is because it's titled the Licking Valley Coon Hunters Club, and that was in 2000. Okay. And so I was wondering if maybe with the raccoons that was part of the crossover. So my question for you is where this is a collaborative work. Did you ever get a sense of where the seams were in the story? Right, between the two contributors? Yeah. No, just simply, I don't know, it reads like a Gene Wolfe story to me. It does to me, too, which is why I asked. Yeah. And so without having read Brian Hopkins, I can't tell you if it sounds like a Brian Hopkins story, but there doesn't seem to be anything about it that's obviously not Gene. 
So if it's a true collaboration, which I'm assuming that it is, they must have minds of a similar stamp in order to have collaborated and it's still to just, to me anyway, come out sounding like Gene. Mr. Wolf. I think I should call him Mr. Wolf. Maybe. Gene seems too familiar. It does. Genie. Genie Wolf. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no, we don't want to be overly familiar here. Along those lines, there's a short story collection, Phoenix, that Brian Hopkins published in 2013. And Wolf wrote the introduction for that short story collection. Well, that would then seem like Wolf at least found plenty of common ground. He seems to be fairly free with introductions in one sense in that it's not rare to find an introduction written by Gene Wolfe, but he also seems quite strict in another sense in that if the writer is not doing something that he finds interesting, I don't think he would just toss off introductions for pay or quid pro quo. No, that, I agree with that assessment. Once again, the seams here were, I didn't see them. Yeah, so. well sewn. Yes. Moving into why I had problems finding the seams here is there are a couple of characteristic wolf tricks or narrative devices. One you already pointed out in the framing narrative, it's Wolf and Hopkins who are the, they are actual characters in the story and they are part of that, the framing narrative bookends. And this is something Gene Wolfe has used in multiple novel length and short story pieces. In the Latro series, it's framed as though Gene Wolfe has purchased papyrus and yes. he's translating an ancient text. And then actually in the Book of the New Sun, there's, it's framed as a translated text, but one that has come from the future and it's time traveled back. And so Gene Wolfe has done the work translating on that. The kind of second wolf narrative device that I noticed here is that we are eavesdropping on another conversation, but we are only getting one side of that conversation. So even though we start out with the first speaker, first speaker doesn't have a lot of lines in this short story. And there are sections where we can intuit, where the second speaker is saying, well, hold up, let me finish and I'll let you go, or as you know, and so there's conversational points in there where we get that the other man must be speaking, but... Right, there's an implied back and forth, but we don't hear the other man's voice. I can't think of anything off the top of my head where Wolf uses that, but I know I've come across that a lot where you'll be like, wait, this doesn't feel right. And then when you think about it, oh, I'm not getting the whole conversation here. It's implied. Right. Third item is the treating of animals and also machines with personhood. Yes, that was the biggest one that struck me, that we have here a very different context than, I don't mm -hmm. know, the Book of the Long Sun. Yes. <laughs> but here, a pickup truck can have a personality. Yeah. For my fourth one, this isn't so much a Gene Wolfe narrative trick that it doesn't really change the way we view the stories, but I've noticed this is something he often does, where there'll be a connection either to an actual wolf or a play on his name. For example, Gene Wolfe wrote a short story in 75 titled The Hero as Werewolf. Michael Bishop, in response, wrote an essay in 1980 titled Gene Wolfe as Hero. And then the two tricksters in 2005, they participated in a discussion or interview where they were discussing the, the craft. 
and they published it as Baying at the Wolf or The Wolf at Bay. So these are obvious examples. Yes. The wolf in this story, other than wolf at the narrator as in there, there is a wolf hidden in this story. Wait, we have a secret wolf? There is a secret wolf. Where's the secret wolf? I didn't pick up on the secret wolf. I think you did. Oh, I did. Yeah, okay. We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> so those are kind of the wolf narrative tools of the trade that I saw in here. And that's why it felt very Wolfian in composition to me. Did you have any others? that you? Well, this isn't maybe about his fiction in general, but just him as a person. And this would be, so outside the context of reading his fiction, reading some of his letters and comments, the way the story is embedded in a rural culture specific to sort of the, well, I don't know. I'm a Westerner, so anything that's east of the Rocky Mountains is back east to me. But <laughs> So I'm probably not going to designate the cultural region accurately, but mm -hmm. that sort of Southern, but not Eastern Southern, Western Southern, but not Southwest, you know what I mean. That Oklahoma, Texas, I think it actually is specifically Oklahoma and Texas that these two authors are from. Yes, that is correct. That sense of being culturally embedded in the rural community and that sense of a native grounding, that felt very Wolfian to me. And again, that's not coming so much from, that's not Fifth Head of Cerberus or Book of the New Sun, that's more on his letters and essays where he talks about that cultural context. And along those lines, the thing that struck me the most when reading it, more than specific Wolfian characteristics, is that this seems very much to be in the genre of the tall tale. I think there are probably a number of his works that could qualify as a tall tale, but this exaggeration or outrageousness, if I say exaggeration, that implies that someone in the story is lying, and I don't get the sense that I'm supposed to be worried about whether or not someone is lying. <laughs> but there's just something about the story that's the details are as outrageous and extreme as the narrator can get away with on the force of his own personality. Yeah. And that felt very authentically American, American literature kind of context. It's like Mark Twain, but more refined. Yeah, because this conversation, I have heard this level of baloney being passed off as legit true stories before in coffee shops and diners in my oh, travels. Yeah. I've heard stories that have this same flavor while riding around on the front seat of pick em up truck, <laughs> although we didn't call them that, in my grandpa's Chevy with the heater going full blast, even though it's well over 90 degrees in the cab, something being tossed back and forth between my grandfather and the neighbor as we're driving down a dirt road. Like This is authentic American culture. I agree there. I'm glad you did bring up the tall tale comment. I have genre. I wrote down it's a tall tale where there are three distinct parts and wrapped in the framing narrative. That's one I kind of go through those three different parts here. So. Okay. Unpack those. Yeah. The first section here, I'm going to call this out because this will come into play later. And I want to point something out later. But very first line, we heard this in a truck stop in Oklahoma. So we are in Oklahoma. Yes. The first paragraph, I'm actually going to read this out loud here. 
Two men in the next booth were talking about dogs, and one said he had trained pointers and setters of several breeds, and that it was much easier to train a bird dog if you had trained a dog that would hunt at the same time, that the trained dog taught the untrained one. Now, I have grown up around dogs my entire life, grew up with several different breeds, July foxhounds, blue tick coonhounds, greyhounds, beagles. Not so much around bird dogs. However, the general opinion that I'm aware of is that this man has stated something very uncontroversial. Just a normal dog training practice. Yes. Yes. I don't know of anybody that seriously disagrees with him. Matter of fact, I've heard people specifically not want to take their dog out with somebody else who owns a dog because the dog might learn bad habits from the other dog. Right. So there's right. examples where, so like when you have scent hounds, like if the dog breaks away from the pack and takes a shortcut to try to get back on the scent, that's a bad habit you don't want your younger dog. To pick up on. Yes. So as far as I'm aware, this is very sound advice that nobody in their right mind who's been around and understands dogs would disagree with. And that's also my sense. I haven't been around as many dogs. I didn't grow up around as many, but all I heard about dog and dogs and dog training, and my dad did train bird dogs for a time, is that you do have, like, you purchase a puppy on a schedule structured around your best hunting dog's peak maturity and ability to guide the new dog. Yeah, that makes sense in my understanding too. So you've got a guy sitting in a booth at a truck stop just saying something extremely conventional. Yeah, and then second paragraph, the other man just straight up disagrees and says, it don't. Yes. <laughs> so then he claims... He has hunted all his life with dogs, and he hasn't seen it happen. Right, except once. Yes, except once. However, there's something here in the second paragraph. Then he says the other man's dog, a German shorthair, says he just hunts the way he does because he sees that the hunter is pleased with the other dogs. So anybody that's been around hunting dogs you get two extremes. Okay. They're either very calm, laying on the porch, or they're very high strung. Now, I'm not 100% certain here, but where the guy's saying his German short hair, it's specifically called out, they are ones that have a reputation for if you mistrain them, they get high separation anxiety. Oh, interesting. The fact that it's called out Best case scenario, the man's just kind of being dismissive. Worst case scenario, he's like, no, you just have taught your dog to have high separation anxiety. And so it's so in tune with you that it just doesn't want you to go. And so it's doing what it wants. So he's reframed everything. And he's saying, no, that dogs in the pack, they do not have relationships. Essentially, they have no existence outside of you as the human. Wow. Okay. I think we just tripped into a highly theological point. Whether Wolf meant it, well, I'm not going to ever accuse him of not meaning something. So you're saying that this interpretation of dog behavior is one where the owner has advertently or inadvertently trained the dog to be extremely person oriented and not to be embedded in the pack. 
that's what the second speaker is accusing the first of. Right. Which would, I think, be some meta commentary on human to human relationship versus human to supernatural relationship. Possibly. Okay. I might be going too far. Well, that may come up many podcasts down the road. We'll see. (laughs) Yeah. With this reframing here, I get the sense on one hand that like this is not a very likable character. Oh, yes. The narrator? Yes. Yeah. However, this is the man who is speaking for 90 to 95% of this short story. Yes, including the part where he comments on how his brother-in-law doesn't let anyone else get a word in edgewise. I'm glad you pointed that out. I have a few notes on that later. I'm not trying to skip ahead. (laughs) So, paragraph three. I've never seen nor heard of but one dog that taught like a regular teacher would. And that was an old coon hound I used to have. Not heard other than the fact that his friend was literally just talking about how the dogs teach each other less than five minutes ago. Right. But if you're going to hear something, you have to listen. Yes, that's true. Good point. The other guy's words aren't even in here. And then not only that, not only is he saying, I did not hear your previous conversation, but the only dog that he has ever heard of or seen do it was one that I used to own. Ah, yes. Me, the center of the universe. Yeah. So again, he's taking it and he's forcing the man's perspective on top of the dog's. So not just dismissing his friend's perspective, but dismissing what he said about dogs having their own perspective as well. Yes. And I think this is key here because he says, Bud, his name was. Old Bud taught sure enough. Only it wasn't no other dog he taught. I reckon he thought it would be too easy for him. Or else maybe he never wanted to see any other dog smarter than him. So two things there. One, question for you. Does that really sound like a dog's perspective? Not at all. It sounds like arrogant, egotistical man's perspective. Sorry, not to be sexist here, but an arrogant, egotistical human perspective. Okay, I'll take that. And then second, and I'll come back around to this, but only it wasn't no other dog he taught. So one of the questions I'm going to come back around at the end is who or what did he teach? Not a dog, that's for sure. We are now in the first section of the story. I'm identifying it as the first section, but this is kind of about Bud's life and who he was as a dog. And we get several anecdotes about him laying in the back of the truck and not wanting to be left out. This sounds like it was written by somebody who is familiar with dogs. My dad, when he was young, he had a motorcycle and a beagle, and the beagle never wanted to be left behind. So the beagle used to sit on top of the seat of the motorcycle and eventually got to the point where he would just sleep up there because he didn't want to be out of the action. So he never wanted to be far enough away from the motorcycle that it could get away from him. Yeah. This bit of description, the coon hound grabbing furs and dragging them into the back of the truck and laying there, sleeping there, always being there, that feels very authentic to farm dog or a hunting dog. We had dogs growing up that would just be beside themselves with excitement if they heard the keys. You can't open the tailgate unless they're going to get into it because they'll get up in it and you almost can't drag them out because they want to be in and go somewhere with you. Yeah. This is written by somebody who is familiar with dogs and loves dogs. 
and is familiar with their behavior and their motivations separate from a human being. The one thing I would call out here is he makes a comment about how I never did figure out how he could climb the ladder. The first speaker apparently says something, which we don't know. And then he responds, oh, sure, he could climb it all right. Any coon hound worth a biscuit can climb. You bet. That'll come into this later. I'm not sure what being worth a biscuit is. Probably worth a dog treat. Yeah. He can assert that he can climb, although how he moved the ladder, I think, is what it says, not how he climbed the ladder. He could never figure out how he moved the ladder. So that's a little bit different. Yes. Sorry, I misread that there. That's okay. You can make a mistake one episode. If St. Augustine had to write retractions, I'm sure I can (laughs) handle a few. So is there anything in this section that you wanted to point out? I was going to skip to the point where he realizes that Bud is dead unless there was. The point when he buries the dog, he makes sure to pray over him, changing the words just enough that it's about a dog rather than about people. That struck me as an important moment in the story. No, I'll agree with you. And I kind of left that out because it wasn't fitting with some of the stuff that I wanted to pull out of it, but I do agree it is an important part. So he is in town, and there's a kid around his car, and he hears the dog growling, and he yells at the kid, you get away from there. He took three or four more steps, and it hit me that Bud was dead. He died the week before, and this is where he buries him. It was his ghost was what I thought. He loved that old truck and he'd come back to it. And I went goose-fleshed all over, felt like my skin was going to crawl right off me. So we get that comment. But then we also go directly the opposite way. So we have almost a numinous experience. Then the second part of this paragraph, only when I started up the engine, I heard the growl just like before. That was the exact same growl, you know. It was the starter motor, and it was my old pick-em-up that had been growling. So he goes from this numinous experience with this plausible scientific mechanical explanation without ever really explaining how the starter, the key was in your pocket. You're calling it a numinous experience. This is the haunting interpretation. Yes. He dismisses the haunting And this is what I wanted to say about the burial is just that if he was properly buried, he couldn't haunt, at least not according to what I would understand to be like a folkloric interpretation of haunting. He was properly laid to rest. He had the proper words said over him. So the notion that there was a haunting going on would violate the fact that there was a proper burial. So that dismissing the numinous interpretation or the haunting interpretation for, you said, kind of a quasi-scientific explanation. Oh, the sound of the growl is the same as the sound of the starter. Calling it scientific, though, just avoids the obvious, which is that, yeah, the keys were in his pocket. Yes. And this, we're kind of dancing around part of the question, but this is a question I'm going to have for you when we get to the end. Okay. So (laughs) We'll hold on to it. So the next paragraph is where the car is acting like the dog in certain ways, where he's marking the territory, kind of wagging a little bit. We kind of get the character asking, is this Bud? So he says, so I called him Bud for a while, thinking he was haunting it. Then it says, only that truck never did cotton to the name. I had to look this up. This is to cotton to something is to get along with or to like. So 
essentially the truck didn't like being called Bud. Never responded to it, essentially. Yes. And then after that, I tried various names that didn't, none of them work. So to your point, if the dog was properly laid to rest, this would be a point in the favor. Yes, the dog was laid to rest and it's not a haunting. Yeah. And then here we have the truck is trying to chase coons. So you'll drive at night and see a coon in your headlights. I always try to miss them. I've been a coon hunter all my life, and the more coons, the better the hunting is, is the way I see it. Only that old pick em up had been learned by Bud real good, and he'd chase after him. Took me right through a bob wire fence once, and about a half mile over the prairie. I'm enjoying the vernacular here. Also, I love bob wire. It's spelled out B-O-B wire mm-hmm. for barbed wire. I assume that that's the, the expression. I assume so, too. That's, I didn't yeah. look it up, but I've heard people say bob wire instead of barbed wire. The section where he's talking about taking him to the mechanic, he trips up and says, take him to the vet. I mean, OK auto repair place in town. Only Rattler, he likes vet better, which means that the truck is somehow correcting the narrator's speech and indicating what he prefers or the narrator's fantasizing his truck's responsiveness to being taken to the vet versus being taken to the auto repair place, the mechanic. Yes, my question too. Okay, I can't be the only person who pats the dashboard and apologizes if I hit a bump too hard in my car as though my car were a person, right? That's not just me. It probably isn't just you, but it's not me. It's not you? You don't apologize to your car when you're hard on it? No. Oh, I just try not to be hard on it. Clearly, I also (laughs) try not to be hard on it, but I'll say, oh, sorry, and pat the dashboard if I hit a pothole or something that I didn't see. So the ending of this section here, we get an interruption. Yeah, a parenthetical here. Yes, because he's like, okay, quit interrupting. I'll let you have your say. Then we get the parenthetical. The first man, the one who trained bird dogs, spoke at some length at this point. We will not give his entire argument word for word. They don't give any of his argument. Yeah, there's not a single word, not much less word for word. Exactly. And they summarize it with, he was skeptical. Weird. He's the first person who would ever have been skeptical at a story like this. So he was skeptical. The way that the speaker responds, well, sir, you're just like to Junior. He's my brother-in-law, the dumb fat one. (laughs) So now we have Junior being the stand-in in the story, at least at some level, for the skeptical man who doesn't quite believe this tall tale. Right. And if you're skeptical and don't believe the tall tale, then you're the dumb fat one named Junior. Yes, I'm just going to say right here, I did not pick up on that because I've actually known a man named Junior my entire life. Surprised to find out when I got older that he was named Junior because he was named after his father. By the time you got to know him, he was already fairly elderly. Is this correct? That is correct. Yeah. So he was named Junior and was one of the oldest people you knew. Yeah. That part didn't stand out to me. But yes, you're correct. He's Junior and dumb and fat. 
And I think your personal experience with somebody named Junior who was neither dumb nor fat and instead was most capable, you have your own personal prejudice toward someone named Junior. But typically, a Junior is somebody who doesn't even warrant their own identity because Mm -hmm. they have a derivative name and then never live up to it. Yes, I think that's a good read on that. That's how I read it. Also, everybody knows that little brothers or brothers-in-law or whatever idiot married your sister or whatever idiot your wife's (laughs) brother is. I mean, it's just a given that you're going to think that Junior's not competent. Yeah. And we hear that because it's the dumbest thing I ever heard a man say. Can you scratch your neck with your back foot, Junior? This is in response to Junior saying anything a dog can do, he could do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So they're at a Baptist social or potluck or like after church get together. So he just wanted to shut him up because he was mad. Mad that Junior didn't believe the tall tale. But then whatever a dog could do, he could do. I don't think that that's a high bar to clear. (laughs) But also there are definitely things that we can't do that dogs can do. And Mm -hmm. there are some characteristic things that dogs do that maybe wouldn't be polite to talk about at the Baptist social. Yes. (laughs) On that line, too, with things that dogs can do that humans don't, like the very fact that they are using the dogs ideally in a partnership, to hunt the raccoons. I guess one thing we should point out here is that back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there very much was a fur market. And in rural areas, like hunting coyote, foxes, bobcat, raccoons, in some cases would be the main source of income because the pelts were high enough. Right, the cash economy of furs. That is kind of funny to think about how different that would be culturally today to the 70s and 80s. We both grew up in a time when the fur market had begun to significantly decline, but it's set before that decline. It came out in 2004, and that's my one mistake per episode. And then that cultural context wouldn't make a lot of sense. Like, why would you be hunting for raccoons? So you have that where they're in partnership with the dogs, but it's because the dogs have a way better sense of smell. Like this is literally, they're using these animals to help with the household economy. And it it is because dogs can do something that people can't. I mean, I grew up with mostly with cattle dogs, not bird dogs, although a few bird dogs, but the bird dogs are doing something that I can't do, which is swim out in the freezing cold water and fetch the dead duck. (laughs) And the cattle dogs are doing something that not only can I not do, I don't want to do, which is run behind the cows and nip at their heels and somehow manage to avoid getting kicked. So I'm glad you brought up the cattle dog. Oh, really? Yes. Because in this whole section where he's complaining about Junior, the narrator then goes on to say that he took a chance And he had Rattler go out and herd cattle. Right. But I thought it was funny that he said that he wanted Rattler to go fetch because fetching is very different than herding a calf, I think. No, you're correct. Yes. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I don't know about a coonhound. A bird dog likes to fetch. I don't know if a coonhound does or not, but a cattle dog is about herding. And so we have a truck trained by a coonhound being told to go fetch, but actually herding a calf. And this is another one of those things where if you're a dog person or who have grown up around dogs, 
Because any dog has like a mix of senses and traits that equate to dogness. But a dog breed is like an exaggeration of traits and genes that predispose them to learn or do a certain behavior or trait more often. Yes. So a coonhound, a hunting dog, their sense of smell and tracking ability, that's been bred into them. Right. That's been selected for very intensely. Yeah. That's not something that a coonhound would have taught the car. Well, an Australian shepherd is not going to swim out into the lake and grab the dead duck. No. The way a retriever is going to. So I just wanted to point that out. It's a point in the negative of our narrator, because while he is a self-professed lover of dogs who's had many of them, it doesn't really seem like he understands dogs. Yeah, and he's interpreting his truck's behavior through a dog lens that doesn't account for the uniqueness and specificity of an individual dog breed, much less an individual dog. And that, I think, is an interesting, maybe that's more of a concluding point, but he has imposed an interpretive framework on his truck's admittedly strange behavior, and I think he's bending the map to mm -hmm. fit his interpretation. So this brings us up to a point where there are two little hidden Gene Wolfe gems, as it were, or maybe this is Brent totally overreading things. Could have been, but let's see. So they're out hunting because they're both in the vehicle. The narrator takes his hands off the wheel. The truck drives along and then eventually it goes off the road and starts following a coon and they tree the raccoon. So there are two things here that I'd want to point out. I'm going to pick up on this paragraph. He kept right on going about 10 miles and then he came to where the coon crossed the road and he got the scent. He followed it off into the woods, and you could hear that gearbox bang. Then the muffler coming in deep where the JB Weld had got scraped off. It was pretty a music as you ever heard. I have a question here for you, Amanda. All right. Do you happen to know the history of JB Weld? Oh, dear. No, I don't. Although... In all fairness, I did not before this either. Oh, interesting. I do know I've heard my father, grandfather, and uncles talk about patching things with it. Okay. So I know what it is as a compound, but no, I yeah. don't know its history. Well, I thought it was very odd that it was specifically a product that was called out here. Not only specifically called out, but it's where the JB Weld got scraped off, and that area where it was scraped off gave pretty a music ever heard. So. Before I go on, I want to go back to the introduction of this story. Okay. As found in Starwater Strains. Oh, yes, that it's collected in. That it is collected in. Speaking of Brian, Wolf says, He is from Oklahoma, though. I like him. And I don't mind that Oklahoma people are smarter than Texas people like me. But they don't have to keep talking and talking about it the way they do. That was why I started listening hard when he said he was going to get himself a new truck with a manual transmission because he couldn't abide a pickup that was smarter than he was. 
we got to talking about trainability, guide trucks for the visually impaired, and so forth. And it went on Wait, from there. Guide trucks for the visually impaired. Yeah, I'm not even. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness! I didn't even go down that rabbit nope, hole. Nope. <laughs> so going back to our reference about JB Weld and, and the you, gearbox and the gearbox, and you're correct. It's an epoxy used in auto. So the JB Weld company was founded in 1969 by Sam and Mary Bonham. Sam had discovered a need for a cold weld product to use in his truck service garage instead of the traditional torch welding. Working with a Texas A&M chemist. Oh, no. Yes. He formulated an original tougher-than-steel two-part epoxy and named it J.B. Weld. So you said, oh, no, Amanda, when I mentioned Texas AMM, why would you have done that? Well, I just don't know. I feel like there might be a connection here. Maybe something to do with Texas people not being as smart as Oklahoma people. And isn't one of our authors here from Texas not from Oklahoma? <laughs> By golly, now that you mention it, Gene Wolfe attended Texas AMM until he <laughs> dropped out during his junior year. Oh my goodness. So not only do we have like this little go back and forth in the collected, but it appears that in the story, in the story, and this is why I called out at the beginning that this takes place in a truck stop in Oklahoma. Yes. It appears that Gene Wolfe put a little thing in there because it's specifically called out J.B. Weld. J.B. Weld is something that is specifically named. I think what I'm going to theorize here is he did it and Brian didn't know what he did. I'm going to agree with that theory. Okay. So, I don't know. I found that enjoyable. I quite like it. So this scene continues and it gets more ridiculous. Old Rattler treed that coon too. And right there, I would say, is where the real trouble came in. I oughter have stopped him right there. And me and Junior got out and had a look at the coon from the ground, is what I mean, and got back in and drove away. Only I wanted to show off. What? No, this guy doesn't have an ego problem. I never touched the wheel, nor the brake, nor the clutch. I gave him his head, and he started up the tree after that (laughs) coon, going to run him over, even if it was 50 feet up in the air. It ain't easy for a pick-em-up to climb a tree, no more than for a hound. And they got the same trouble. Their tires ain't sharp. (laughs) What? Rattler get up a ways and hook his front bumper on a limb. You know how they do, probably. Yeah. Okay. So that actually does resonate as an image because if you've ever seen a dog trying to go up a tree and out here in the West, that would be up after a squirrel, probably Mm -hmm. more than a raccoon. You can see them sometimes try to hook their chin over a tree branch, and then they curl their back legs up and try to get enough purchase to go up. I've seen a dog get pretty high in a tree, high enough that I was worried when they fell back down. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of wasn't really thinking of that, but yeah, you're right. I have seen dogs do that. Well, I don't know. Wolf slash Hopkins description here of the truck climbing the tree, that evoked that image for me right away. So I think we have a classic Gene Wolfe trick here at the ending of this paragraph. Because it says, and he'd feel around with his front wheels trying to get traction. 
he's got front wheel drive naturally. And he hadn't had that we'd still be trying to get up that tree. Front wheel drive and all, it still took quite a time. So Amanda. Yes. You grew up with pickup trucks, right? A number of them. Someday I'll provide a recounting of all of the pickup trucks whose brakes were going out in my varied and colorful childhood. But yes, lots <laughs> lots of pickup trucks. Did you have a yearly routine when winter would come around with those pickup trucks? What, you mean putting winter tires on them? Well, I'm more thinking in, yes, that, but like in the back, in the bed of the vehicle. Or... What, throwing sandbags and cordwood in the back to give it some weight? Yes. So that you wouldn't slide around everywhere because I've never heard of an old truck that was front wheel drive. They're all rear wheel drive. Yes. Unless I... you shelled out the big money and got one from the 70s or later that was four wheel drive. Is this what we're talking about this here? This is what we're talking about. I'm sure I've told you about the time I was driving my 67 Ford pickup down freeway fairly slowly, but it had just snowed. And <laughs> despite the sandbags in the back, I did a pleasant little 180 and found myself sliding backwards down the freeway with cars driving past oh me. <laughs> it was quite exciting. I was like, oh, this is how I die. Oh, no, I guess I lived. <laughs> but I was 20 and invincible at that point. So yeah, no, I've never heard of an old pickup or pick em up that had front wheel drive. Neither had I. And it, once again, I thought this was an oddly specific reference because it's yes. mentioned twice here in this paragraph. Yes. In a bunch of absurdity. Did you find some obscure pickup truck that has front-wheel drive? Volkswagen did make a front-wheel drive rabbit pickup truck from 1979 to 1982. Really? Internationally, they're known as the Caddy, and over time, they've been moved into more of a van. Very briefly, here in North America, released a front-wheel drive pickup. That's interesting. Amanda, do you know of any other Volkswagens from maybe media or fiction that are known for having a mind of their own? Given my extensive pop culture education. Yeah, I'm kind of asking the wrong By person. which, no, actually, this is a perfect question. Only just for the personal vignette aspect side of it. This is apparently all about me now. When I was quite young, there was a six-month period of my childhood where we were being babysat by a high school kid while waiting for my mom to get done with work. Said family had three movies that we were allowed to watch. <laughs> We weren't allowed to watch a movie very often, but there was one day a week where we were out of school early and we were allowed to watch a movie one day a week. I think I can remember all three of the movies. <laughs> one was The Sound of Music, which okay. my grandmother also had and one was one of the two movies we were allowed to watch at her house. So we never wanted to watch that at the babysitter's house. The second one was The Princess Bride, which is classic and wonderful. And yes. the third one was called Herbie Goes Bananas. Yes. Okay. And that's where I was trying to land at this. And you know what I realized at this point? What? This is a mix-up of the love bug and where the red fern grows. Oh, my It's all goodness. there. <laughs> a Volkswagen with a mind of its own, a yes. dead coon hunting dog. This is over the top. No, Gene Wolfe would never be over the top. This must be all that Brian guy's fault. It probably is. <laughs> 
anyway, it's an oddly specific enough reference that I looked it up. And I think the title of the subtitle of the story throws it off a little because it says right. a new Dodge. Yeah, specifically as, says Dodge. Yeah, as far as I can tell, in this time period, Dodge never had a front-wheel drive pickup. That would be a red herring. Yes. Then. Oh, good call for, like, hunting dogs there. Man, I wish I thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> you can just edit it in to be your line later. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next phase of the story, we really get to focus not so much on Rattler's behavior, but on how Rattler's behavior affects Junior and stimulates some new and interesting behavior in Junior. There aren't a lot of details that I researched in this section. I didn't need to look up what a Ruger Bearcat was, but I thought it was interesting that we get this family conflict. So our narrator's sister calls him and he's telling the story. And so in his narrative, Midge calls him up and is like, Junior is behaving badly. You need to fix it. And I think what is not being said here is Junior's behaving badly and it's because you've been being a jackass. Because he claimed that he bragged about Rattler just to get Junior's goat. <laughs> and he said things just to shut Junior up. No, it's easy. He said that he said it just to shut Junior up. And then now Junior's trying to train his truck to do things. And so far, <laughs> all he's been able to train it to do is to roll over. Not only that, but only roll over when he is behind the wheel. And hands on it. Uh -huh. So Junior has gone out and rolled his truck several times, which I don't know if you've ever rolled a truck, Brent. I haven't rolled a truck. Neither have I. I don't want to roll a truck. Nope. And without a roll cage, you kind of get one shot at that, and then your truck's so beat up and broken that it needs to go to the body shop, and you're definitely going to need a new windshield. So he's out there trying to teach his truck to do something and can't seem to. And then how does he fix it? Well, he fixes it in an unlikely way. Yes, one that ties into Gene and Brian's actual conversation, according to the introduction from Starwater Strains, talking about an automatic transmission versus a manual transmission. Yeah, because he says you can't train a truck that already knows how to do these things. Okay, I hadn't quite viewed it from that angle. Okay, what were you looking at it as? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. Because it's part of my question. Yeah, so our narrator says that you can't train a truck that's already so smart, but a truck that is so smart that it has an automatic transmission can teach a person. Yeah, so you mean it's teaching me, he says. That's for you to say, Junior. I say real gentle-like, only I don't believe anybody's ever going to teach a pick-em-up that has an automatic anything. Then they go and get ice cream. Which is a nice thing to do. Yeah, but it's real quiet there. It's real quiet on the way back. And I kept telling myself how nobody had ever got anything through that thick skull of Junior's. He's the dumb and fat one. Right. But I'd promised Midge and done the best I could. Right. And then it does seem like Junior has changed in some significant way because he moderates his speech talking about an auction 
Because he's excited about the buying and selling and who all from the area might be bringing. I'm assuming that this is a livestock auction. It may not be. But who might be bringing things and who might be there to buy. So he's interested in the product and also the people that have the product. And then the opportunity for margin for buying and selling and for getting a good deal or, or something. And the narrator says that he could see that there was something going on behind his eyes because he had slowed down his speech and was being more deliberate. And then, I mean, this just sounds so condescending to me. Junior, I says, that's plum smart. And I notice you're taking your time with it more than usual, if you don't mind me saying it. I mean, I would be annoyed by that. But Junior says, well, that auction's a long grade and a steepen. And sometimes a feller needs to shift down. What? (laughs) Yeah, there's our punchline in a Herbie Redfern grows pache. With a... Herbie goes coon hunting. Yeah. And after the dog dies. And then the dumb, fat brother-in-law learns that he needs to downshift when he's going uphill. Right. I mean, you do need to downshift when you're going uphill. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, maybe he I really is dumb. <laughs> we all learned that our first time driving up a big mountain pass in a manual transmission. So at this point, our story ends... And we are back out into the framing narrative. This is the end of the framing narrative. Right. And so we're in Gene Wolfe and Brian as the people in the story. This is their perspective. And this is the first time in the story you realize that it's Gene and Brian explicitly, because at the beginning, they just said, we overheard a conversation. And now we paid and so did they and started out. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower. Brian looked around at Jean and said, did you say that? No, Jean said. I think it was Robert Blake. Who's Robert Blake, Amanda? Well, no one, although someone. So there was a Robert Blake, unknown and died in childhood younger brother of the moderately more famous William Blake, the Ah. great English romantic poet, who wrote a poem called Auguries of Innocence that starts out to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower. But Robert Blake, as it's attributed, Robert Blake didn't write anything so far as we know. Did he? In my research, I didn't really find anything like that because he died younger and it left an impact on his brother. Right, so we have a second death in the story by what seems to be sort of an inadvertent misattribution, misremembering William Blake's name as Robert Blake. Maybe we have Brian, the Oklahoman, being like, did you say that? And then Gene, the Texan, no, it was, and then giving the wrong source. So maybe that's right. Like, they're both kind of dumb, except for the J.B. Weld stuff. Well, and it's interesting to me, if you do quote something famous and someone thinks you said it, like, you could just, along with a tall tale, just claim someone else's words as your own if Gene were, like, unnamed narrator. And Auguries of Innocence, an interesting poem to invoke, because I'm just going to read a short excerpt from it. It's quite long, and I wouldn't want to read the whole thing. But let's just go with the accumulation of imagery here. To see a world in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wildflower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand, 
and eternity in an hour. A robin redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. A dove house filled with doves and pigeons shudders hell through all its regions. A dog starved at his master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. A horse misused upon the road calls to heaven for human blood. Each outcry of the hunted hare a fiber from the brain does tear. A skylark wounded in the wing, a cherubim does cease to sing. The gamecock clipped and armed for fight does the rising sun affright. Every wolf's and lion's howl raises from hell a human soul. So there's our hidden wolf in the story. Well, it's there, a few lines down from what Jean quoted, and embedded in imagery that essentially, I mean, it's a romantic argument, but it's that doing damage to the natural world is doing damage to your humanity. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a Blake scholar here, but that mm -hmm. seems a pretty obvious aspect of the poem. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And it is a theme that comes up quite a bit in Jean Wolfe's other writings. So there is that care and concern for animals and the environment, but then also people in the margins too. So, Well, and I would say this struck me when I first read The Book of the Long Sun, the way that the chems, the chemical persons, were treated in the narrative as much like people as the biological persons. And obviously you're dealing with, I feel kind of silly even talking about it like this because this is Rattler. It's a dog. It's a truck that acts like a dog that goes hunting and herds a cow. And yet this is a fully realized personality. Yes. And even if the narrator doesn't understand what he's dealing with here, Gene is telling a story about a truck that has some aspect of personhood and then invokes this romantic concept of the significance of honoring the integrity of all beings. I think you summarized it nicely there. I did have a couple of questions. However, right. they feel foolish after that summary. Okay, <laughs> we can talk about them. My first question, and I'm not entirely sure if this is as important, but is the dog, is Bud, do you think he's actually haunting the pickup? Or do you think that the pickup has actually come to life? Because on one hand, I could see where it could be read as the narrator because he gets goose fleshed and he feels like his skin's going to crawl off of him, is so afraid of numinous experience that he's created this kind of absurd story to explain what could just be a haunting. Right, through his fear, rejects the possibility of a haunting, and then reinterprets the haunting as something else. I didn't think of it that way. The way I read it was his assertion about how a trained dog trains the untrained dog is what happens with the truck. So he argues that Bud trained the truck, but it seems to me that what happened is what he was saying is, oh, it's they're not really training. The trained dog's not really training the untrained dog. The untrained dog is just going, oh, this is what pleases you, or what pleases the person, I'll do that. And the truck seems to be, in some sense, invested in pleasing the narrator, in doing things that he thinks, that the truck thinks the narrator likes. And so my sense was that it wasn't a haunting, but it was one of two things, either a reincarnation, the dog's soul was properly laid to rest, but maybe it came back in a new form, 
and then inspirits the truck, ensouls the truck, or that the truck had a latent sleeping soul that comes to life when the narrator has this loss and needs companionship. That makes sense. The second question I have, and I think this might throw light on why I asked the first question to begin with, who is trained in this that isn't the dog? Who do you think? And I asked this, and maybe this is an unfair question because I don't think it was Rattler. I think it was the narrator because like you said, just doing things that please. And it's like, well, what did he do? He pleased Midge. Then we have Bud training or insoling Rattler. Rattler, in some sense, kind of trains or guides Junior, but then Junior provides the opportunity for the narrator not just to see him as dumb and stupid and thick-skulled, but he actually makes an attempt to, now granted it's on the behalf of his sister because his sister asked, but he does make an attempt to have a human connection there instead of just shutting down his brother and embarrassing him in front of other people and also telling him stories just to goad him on. I think that Rattler is training him in the sense that Rattler, by asserting his personality, is pushing the narrator to take his hands off the wheel. And he calls the truck to him. The truck does things for him. Rattler also does the things that Rattler wants to do. And the narrator kind of has to go along with it. I think everybody becomes a little bit more human by the end. Oh, wow. What a touching story. It's so uplifting. Do you have any other things that you would like to go over? Well, this isn't really important for the story. But I did want to point out that as the story is printed, there is an ash included, which is the A-E together in the original text. I'm not positive this was intentional, although I think it would be very strange for this to appear inadvertently. He hemmed and hawed just like I'd been scaredy would, and we went around a few times on it, him talking five to my one like usual. Well, around is spelled with the archaic medieval A-E that are together, which is typically used now to denote pronunciation of like an A sound in phonetic Um, spelling. Okay. It's not typically used for spellings like encyclopedia and medieval that used to have the ash as a letter. It's very hard to do typographically, is my understanding, without introduction of an additional key or character into a typewriter or a typesetting system. But I couldn't figure out what the connection would be. So it seems odd there, and I tried to chase down the, all the references I could. It's often used to invoke a deliberate archaism, but there doesn't seem to be context for that. It's also used in numismatics to denote bronze. Sometimes I feel like I've done this now a couple of times already. Here's we are on episode three. I chased something down and didn't find the connection. And I think that that's okay. Yeah, I totally missed it, so I'm oh, glad okay. you caught it. Yeah, if somebody knows what Gene Wolfe could have been meaning by including that, I'd love to know, but I couldn't figure it out. I would also like to know. Excellent. Well, there's always something more to learn in this world. The unreliable narrators are Amanda Patchen and Brent Tell. And as Gene Wolfe said, hope is a psychological mechanism unaffected by external realities. Keep-